Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Brethren, let us hear the word of God. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. May the Lord give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to his church. As a righteous man, Joseph was considering privately calling off his betrothal to Mary because she was pregnant before they were actually married. There was a waiting period in that time where there would be the betrothal. Uh, generally, parents signed contracts when the children were very early. And uh, <clears throat> then during the one-year waiting period, there was an opportunity for the woman to show her purity. Uh, obviously, if she had been engaged in immorality and were pregnant, it would show up within that year's time. <clears throat> so during this period, Mary indeed shows up pregnant. But the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him not to fear taking Mary as his wife. Of course, they were actually considered man and wife before that one year period began. <clears throat> That's how very serious the idea of entering into a betrothal was. Now, <clears throat> Mary's conception was by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. The angel of the Lord announced to Mary that she would bring forth a son, or announced, excuse me, to Joseph that Mary would bring forth a son who was to be named Jesus. The name Jesus means Yahweh or Jehovah saves. Or Yahweh is salvation. Now what is important for our study this evening is the reason that the angel of the Lord assigns this name to Mary's son. Thou shalt call his name God saves, Jehovah saves, because he shall save his people from their sins. This is not a speculative statement. It is an announcement from heaven regarding the certainty of Jesus accomplishing his work. He shall save. The name Jesus doesn't mean God would like to save. God will probably save. Or God will try to save. His name means God saves. Jehovah saves. And that is His name because Jesus will rescue His people. Now, <clears throat> this is a, a most important point as we come uh, to our study this evening in the study of God's saving grace. Uh, 
Uh, for those of you who have not been with us or haven't been with us uh, for a while on Wednesday evening, our, uh, our theme is, By Grace Ye Are Saved. And we begin a new unit, if I can say it that way, um, in our study. And tonight's title is, He Shall Save His People. We want to consider this under two primary heads this evening. First of all, we're going to do a review of God's saving purpose. We're going to do a review, and uh, I try to do that whenever we start a, uh, a, new, a new section uh, in, in these series studies. Secondly, we want to look at the Son's work in God's saving purpose. So, those of you that are here tonight for the first time will get to be caught up with where we are and what we're studying this evening as we begin with a review. So, let's, let's take up this idea first then of a review of God's purpose as we've looked at it under the theme of, By grace ye are saved. The first thing we want to consider under this is how something is accomplished. How something is accomplished. When someone wants to accomplish a goal or resolve a problem, he must con uh, carefully consider what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. In other words, an agent who wants to accomplish a specific goal must set about using proper means to do so. 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 5 gives us an example of this in Solomon. When he said, And behold, I purpose to build an house unto the name of the Lord my God. Alright? Solomon conceived a goal. There was something he wanted to do. And <clears throat> this being his purpose, he set about with the proper means to accomplish that goal. Very simple uh, steps that we're thinking through here, but they're vital when it comes to this issue of the saving work of Christ. We want to be able to ascertain from Scripture what God's purpose was. What was the goal He had in view? With King Solomon as the agent and his goal of building the house, then he secured Hiram to supply him with cedar and fir trees, he appointed 70,000 carriers, 80,000 hewers of stone, 300 and, or 3,300 foremen over the workers. And he gathered precious stones for laying the foundation. Solomon was the agent. Building the house of the Lord was the end or the goal in view. And he planned and utilized numerous means to accomplish his task. So the agent applies means to achieve the goal. Everybody with that? that pretty simple? Well, good. So the agent is the who. The means is the how. And the goal is the what. If we understand those things, biblically speaking, we will more clearly understand what God purposed to do in the work of Jesus Christ. We laid these things out at the beginning of our study several weeks, uh, several months ago, 
And we are reviewing these this evening so that we will, uh, as we come to our new section, uh, more readily understand some of the deep waters we'll be in the next few weeks. So then, if something is accomplished in this particular way, then we want to apply that to the issue of salvation. How is salvation accomplished? The Bible talks about it. It's plainly set forth. Chapter after chapter, promise after promise. The Bible reveals the story of God's uh, working or wonderful work of saving sinners. And we want to consider the who, the how, and the what of salvation for just a few moments. The agent, the who of salvation, is the triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is wonderfully set forth for us in Ephesians chapter 1, and in our review, we won't go back and look at all of those passages. We have looked at those in some detail. All three persons of the Godhead are vitally involved in the redemption of sinners. So, what are the means? How does God save sinners? Now, Scripture reveals that there is a perfect unity among the members of the Godhead, and that each of the glorious persons of the Trinity has his role in the rescue of sinners. As we will see in the studies ahead, <clears throat> the Father purposed salvation, the Son accomplished salvation, and the Holy Spirit applies salvation. Once again, that's the who, and this is how it's done. The Father purposed, the Son accomplished, and the Holy Spirit applies salvation. And the goal, of course, is God's glory through the redemption of His people. Thou shalt call His name God saves. Jehovah saves. Why? For He shall save, He shall deliver His people from their sins. He will do that. Now that's the end in view. So, <clears throat> having laid those principles down at the beginning of our uh, studies, we then came to God's sovereignty. We uh, began, by grace ye are saved, by surveying some of the most important passages in God's Word regarding His sovereignty. God's sovereignty is His absolute rule over the entire created order. People, places, things, events. According to His eternal purpose. We saw passage after passage after passage from which we derived this understanding. We didn't make the definition first and then try to squeeze the Bible into it. We read through the passages of the Word of God and then derived that this is what it is telling us. Now, if this is the case, and it is according to the Word of God, then God is also and especially sovereign over salvation. Most of evangelicalism 
if they know the word of sovereignty uh, or know the word sovereignty at all, uh, is happy to say that God is sovereign over his creation. They're not happy to say that he's sovereign over the issue of salvation. Well, that being the case, we wanted to consider then man's condition so that we might understand more clearly what God does to save sinners. If sinners need to be saved, why? And man's sinful condition we called radical depravity. Radical depravity. Those who disagree with our understanding of Scripture often misunderstand us to teach utter depravity when we say total depravity. Therefore, radical depravity is probably the more accurate term. Utter would mean that all men are as wicked as they can possibly be. We don't believe the Scriptures teach that. But we do mean, we do mean that men are radically Depraved. The word radical comes from the Latin radix, which means root. The Bible teaches us that sin has permeated every aspect of man's being. The body, the soul, the mind. All of man. Certain portions of Scripture describe him as dead in his trespasses and sins separated from God because of his wickedness. Other portions describe him as a slave to his sin and a slave to Satan as well. His will is bound by his sinful, darkened, deceitful heart. Therefore, if he is to be rescued, God must do it. He cannot do it himself. Left to, him, left to himself, a sinful man will never come to God. Once again, thou shalt call his name Jesus. God saves, not man saves. Not man helps God save. Thou shalt call his name Jehovah saves. For he shall save his people from their sins. Well, that brought us then to the issue of sovereign election. We considered the testimony of Scripture regarding the important subject of predestination. And we pointed out over and over during that particular portion of our study the word predestination was not put in the Bible by John Calvin. It was put in the Bible by the Holy Spirit. This is a word that is most important for us to understand. And every Bible believer must have a doctrine of predestination. Now, you may not agree with how we find it in the Scripture. You may not agree with how we understand it and its definition. But you can't reject predestination without rejecting the very words of God. <clears throat> so, 
we discovered that before the foundation of the world, God planned to rescue sinful men through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is plainly what his word says. And we considered five words that helped us understand predestination and God's sovereign election. The first word was purpose. God's purpose of salvation is not an impotent wish, but a certain, immutable, unbreakable decree. So when we speak of the purpose of God, we are talking about His eternal design to save sinners by His grace through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked at numerous passages that dealt with the word purpose. And that was plainly established for us. Secondly, we looked at the word foreknowledge. To foreknow means to know beforehand or to know in advance. Foreknowledge does not mean bare facts about someone. It doesn't simply mean having or possessing knowledge of someone or something. Where it is used in the scriptures, in the passages to which we turned, it is clear by the very usage and the context that it points to an intimate knowledge, a love relationship before the foundation of the world. Foreknowledge is God's love before time, His desire to enter into union with those He has purposed to save, whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate. And that's the next word we looked at, was predestinate and predestination. That word means to decide beforehand or to mark out beforehand, to determine ahead of time. And we saw that that was applied to men, certain sinners that God has marked out. And that did not apply to all men. That applies to certain men, some men, particular men, but not all men. And that, of course, led us into the, the fourth word, election. <clears throat> By sovereign election, we mean that according to the counsel of His own will, God chose to rescue certain sinners from the guilt, the bondage, and the condemnation of their sins. God's election is not because of foreseen faith or foreseen good works, but is motivated purely by His singular and sovereign good pleasure to the glory of His grace. This is what the Scriptures tell us. We can go no further back than that. Lord, why did You do this? To the praise of the glory of His grace. That's what the Scriptures tell us. We can go no further. He lets us see no further into His eternal mind when it comes to that issue. And finally, the fifth word was the word reprobation. God's eternal purpose to pass by certain men and leave them under the just condemnation for their sins to the glory of His justice. 
So that brings us to the Son's work in God's purpose. Remember, we said God has purposed salvation. And so the first of those three, uh, <clears throat> uh, the three things that we said, the Father purposed, the Son accomplishes, and the Holy Spirit applies, has now been carefully worked through, spending weeks looking at the Scriptures. And the clear declaration is that God designed to save certain sinners to the praise of His glory and to leave some sinners to their just condemnation to the praise of His justice. So the purpose of God is established <clears throat> or that God has purposed salvation is established. Now, we want to look at the Son's work in God's purpose. This will take up the rest of our time this evening. Now, the testimony from God's Word is that God the Father, as the agent of salvation, has purposed, planned, designed to save sinners. And that salvation is in His Son, Jesus Christ. He purposed to send His Son into this sin-cursed world to die for sinners. Now, we've seen verses that told us that, even though we were looking at the issue of God purposing, we simply couldn't escape the fact that many of those passages also talk about how He intended to do that. His purpose was all in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is all of grace. It is all of Christ. God purposed to send His Son into the sin-cursed earth, and He purposed to punish his Son as the substitute for sinners. Now all of this brings us to the glorious subject of Christ's saving work on the cross. Historically, this has been called limited atonement. However, like total depravity, the term is subject to misunderstanding. It even sounds negative, doesn't it? I mean, it just sounds bad in the ears of especially modern men. Limited. Limited. That, well, that sounds little. We don't like the way that sounds. Of course, the critics of this very often do not appreciate that everybody limits the atonement one way or another. There were, I have sat uh, in the presence of men who have said, you believe in limited atonement. And I said, did Jesus shed his blood for angels in your system? No. I said, then it's limited to sinners? Well, sort of. Yeah. Everyone limits the atonement some way. So the issue isn't whether it's limited. We want to bring it back to the proper question. What did God purpose to do? We've seen now abundant testimony that God purposed to do something. And that something was in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we want to know what that something is. And we want to hear it in detail from the Word of God. So, we will use the terms particular redemption or definite atonement. And I think those can be more readily understood and more easily defended. Definite atonement or particular redemption. Now, this will be our subject for the next several weeks. Now, in the, in the doctrine of radical depravity, we see man's desperate need for deliverance. In predestination, we see what God the Father has purposed for man's deliverance. And in particular redemption, we see what God the Son has accomplished for man's deliverance. I trust you're beginning to see there's, there's a flow here. There is a clear structure in God's Word, once we begin to look at these passages carefully. Now, we have to ask ourselves a question, and this is a hard one. Before we actually begin to consider Christ's saving work uh, for the purpose of this kind of study, we have to ask the question, for whom did Christ die? That is the way it has historically been asked. It's a good question, and we ought to ask it just that way. For whom? Did Christ die? Do the scriptures tell us? All evangelical Christians would agree with the statement, Jesus Christ died to save sinners. All of them. But there is a world of difference between saying, Jesus died to save all men, and Jesus died to save his people. Thou shalt call his name Jehovah saves, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, considering the possibilities, if we take the words all and some, we can only come to one of the following conclusions. I've, I've thought about it. I've seen this put two ways, three ways. I've put it four ways to give it as, as broad a possibility as we can, we can consider it so that we can be at least, people disagree with us, they will at least say, well, it, they thought through the possibilities. Number one, Christ died for some of the sins of some men. We could say that. Secondly, we could say Christ died for some of the sins of all men. Or we could say Christ died for all of the sins of some men. Or Christ died for all of the sins of all men. There's no other possibilities that I know of. In answer to the question for whom Christ died... Now, among evangelicals, there are only two possibilities. Quite obviously. If we say, Jesus Christ died for some of the sins of some men, no man will be saved. Because you're still in your sins, whoever those particular men are. And we also have to reject the idea that Jesus died for some of the sins of all men. For exactly the same reason. If you have one sin to your account, 
you are lost forever. So that leaves evangelicals only two possibilities. Either Jesus Christ died for all of the sins of all men, which is the modern and the popular way of answering the question. Or there is the other conclusion. Jesus Christ died for all of the sins of some men. There are those who have done all they can to try to make those two work together. But the scriptures just will not permit that. So it has to be one or the other. So God willing, in the next few weeks, we will see how the scriptures answer for whom did Christ die. Of course, I can tell you in advance, kind of preaching to the choir as I am here tonight, we believe that Christ died for all of the sins of some men. And there are those that immediately object. They don't like the way that sounds. And I wholeheartedly concur. But when the first time that was presented to me, I abhorred it. And brethren, it took me years before the Scriptures convinced me of the position which I now hold. I read, I studied, I looked in the Scriptures, I prayed, I discussed, I read books. There are a lot of arguments out there. But the Scriptures say some things that are very powerful and very strong. Now, I will say to you, if you hear this, and this is not what you've been taught before, and you find it troubling, take your time, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. Now, in our last few moments, I want us to look at just a few passages to ascertain the purpose of Christ's death. As we attempt to answer the question, for whom did Christ die, we must answer, or we must ask another one. And it's this. What did God intend by the death of Christ? Does the Bible tell us? What What did God intend by sending His Son into this world? Well, do the Scriptures explicitly tell us? Yes. But very often we have so many filters and so many blinders on, we begin to read the Scriptures and we often look right past how boldly certain things are told us. According to the angel, we know this for absolute certainty. Jesus Christ was named Jehovah Saves. Why? Because He might? No. Because He would like to? No. Because He shall save His people from their sins. That is an absolute certainty. And that being said... Christ either accomplished that 
or he did not. We know at least whatever else can be said about the death of Christ, that he was sent to save his people from their sins. Now, that was according to the angel of the Lord. According to Christ himself, he says in Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. We're having the purpose of God unfolded before our very eyes. This is what God uh, and His blessed Son are telling us. Jesus Christ says, I came, certainty, to seek and to save. It doesn't say, I came in the hopes, does it? It doesn't say that. I came to make something possible. It doesn't say that. I came to seek and to save. Did he accomplish that or not? He also said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and this is only two of many verses. Again, this is our introductory thinking on this, so we'll look at many more passages in the weeks ahead. But Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give His life a ransom for many. Now, the idea of ransom here is a price paid to release somebody. Was anybody released? That's the question. Did Jesus accomplish the release of anybody? Or did He only make release possible? He came to give His life a ransom for many. Did He do that? Or did He not? And if He did... What did that ransom accomplish? And then, quite obviously, if we can answer those questions, as we will, from the Word of God, then we must ask, for whom did He accomplish that? According to Paul, it says, or he says, who gave Himself for our sins. Positive act that He might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. Remember, God purposed. Here His purpose is being mentioned. The will of God and our Father. And what is it? That He will deliver. He will deliver. How will He deliver? Well, He delivered by giving Himself. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, once again, we're not asking for whom did Christ die. We're asking what was His purpose. Okay? We'll answer for whom he accomplished this purpose. But we want the purpose first. The purpose is to 
save sinners. And that's good news to sinners. That's good news. You say, doesn't a teaching like this make all of this kind of difficult? No, what makes, us, what makes it difficult is being taught something wrong for years. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, says, Who gave himself for us. And of course, in the weeks ahead, we'll have to determine who that us is. But he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Somebody somewhere can say, all my sins were paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons they can say that is because his name describes who he is and what he's done. God saves. And he's going to save his people. And he is saving his people from their sins. He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Not every person. It's laid out once again, plainly. Now, this one borders on answering the question, for whom did Christ die? But we're working on the question, what was his purpose? And that purpose was to redeem us, somebody, from all iniquity. And of course, this is why evangelicals only have two possibilities. Either all the sins for all men, or all the sins for some men. John put it this way, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent, there's the idea of purpose, His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the word propitiation means an appeasement. In other words, it's a sacrifice that turns away wrath. If Jesus Christ was sent to turn away all of God's wrath, then why do we have the book of Revelation in the Bible? If Jesus Christ was sent to turn away all of God's wrath, why are any in hell? Why are any in hell? Because of the intended purpose is that all the sins of all men is the case, then how are there any men held liable for their sins? Because Jesus Christ didn't try to propitiate the Father. He propitiated Him. He turned away His wrath. So our summary, then, just for this introduction, then, this evening, is this. We know that Jesus Christ's purpose, that God the Father's purpose in sending the Son is, one, to save sinners. Did He do that or did He not? 
how is that done? Number two, to deliver sinners from this present evil world. Number three, to redeem sinners from all iniquity. And fourthly, to purify sinners and make them holy. If this is the case, and if Jesus Christ's intention was to do this for every man, he did not accomplish what his death was intended to do. Is that clear? If Christ suffered for all men, why will some men suffer in hell? Normally, the response to that is, ah, well, because they didn't believe. Seems easy enough. But that must be followed with a very honest and sincere question. Is unbelief a sin? Is it sinful not to believe in Jesus Christ? If it is a sin and Christ has paid the penalty for all sins, then men cannot be put in hell for unbelief. Well, I don't want us to dwell on too many difficult questions in our first evening. We've just introduced the subject. And <clears throat> I trust we'll have a far more edifying time in the next few weeks as we take one passage after another and ask some of these questions. But what I want to leave us with tonight is this. If you know and understand the things that I'm setting before you, you're simply having this affirmed to your own heart and you're being encouraged and edified in what you already believe to be the Word of God. If, on the other hand, you've not been taught this and you find some consternation rising up in you, you're wrestling as you hear some of these things, my question to you and then my comment to you is this. Will you be angry with God for saving whom He will? If He saves you, are you angry that He would save no other? If He's had mercy on someone like you, are you angry that He would not save another? Because if you understand that He has saved you by grace, you recognize that He did not owe it you and He does not owe it to those that He leaves in their sins. But my comment is this. It's twofold. For those that are Christians, I understand the difficulty of wrestling with this particular issue. I remember expressly the discomfort I felt as I began to ask myself these questions and ask the Scriptures these questions. So I urge you with all of my heart to be Berean, take the Scriptures, look at these things, and ask, how does God save sinners? We have established, I think beyond any reasonable doubt, that God has purposed to save. 
Now we want to unfold how he has accomplished that. Lastly, I would say to the sinner who does not know Christ, the Lord has not opened up the book of life for any of us to gaze on so that we see who will be saved and who will not. He has simply given us a precious promise. Whosoever will may come. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Do you labor under your sins? Are you heavy laden with your sins? The precious Son of God says, Come to me and you will be delivered. For the moment, do not trouble yourself with the depths of exactly how and why God accomplished what He did. Hear the Gospel promise and by the grace of God, flee to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe His promise. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we come to Your Word, as we have looked at it this evening, there is no doubt Your purpose is to save. Your purpose is to accomplish a glorious, a full, and a free salvation in the Lord Jesus. And those who repent of their sins, believing on Him, have everlasting life. O Lord God, open our hearts, illumine our minds, and teach us Thy truths. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.